Hi, this is your host, Corbin, and this is your guide for Tim Burton's Batman. This is not the review for Batman that is coming next week. This is your guide, giving you all the behind the scenes, production insights, box office, what audiences and critics thought of it, how it's lasted, the legacy of all of it. So you're going to want to make sure to subscribe to the podcast for the full review coming on Monday. But before we get into the making of the film, allow me to take you back to 1989 to remember the top movies released that year. They were Driving Miss Daisy, which would go on to win Best Picture, Dead Poet Society, When Harry Met Sally, The Little Mermaid, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Field of Dreams, my personal favorite, The Verbs, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Roadhouse, UHF, and Steel Magnolias. From that year, we have already reviewed nine movies. The top five of those are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Back to the Future Part 2, Christmas Vacation, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Ghostbusters 2. You can find the rest in the archives wherever you get your podcasts. But specifically, if you want to go hunt those down, head over to silverscreenguide.podbean.com. Links to all of those reviews I just listed are in the show notes below. If you'd like to reminisce more about the films of 89, then head over to letterbox.com. And make sure to follow me and Alan over there. Links to our profiles are below. At the 61st Academy Awards, Best Picture went to Rain Man. A year after the Sulkins got Superman off the ground, producers Benjamin Melnicker and Michael Uslan purchased the film rights for Batman. At the time, the only theatrical Batman film was the campy TV show tie-in to the Adam West and Burt Ward series, which I'm a fan of, by the way. That's what I grew up with. Uslan wanted to go in the opposite direction of the TV show, but no one was willing to take that chance. It wasn't until Donner proved a comic book hero could be taken seriously by audiences on the big screen that the idea of a Batman movie was taken more seriously. Finally, in July 1980, Warner Bros. decided to take a chance and help produce and distribute the film. After Universal Pictures turned it down, by the way. Surprisingly, Tom Mankiewicz, who had written Superman with Donner, wrote his own draft of the film, titled The Batman. Hmm, wonder where we've heard that recently. His script took inspiration from the limited series Batman Strange Apparitions. The Batman would debut in 1985 with a $20 million production budget. Of course, that didn't come to pass, but we're going to get there in a second. Mankiewicz was pulling for an unknown to portray Batman, similar to the casting of Superman. His choices of William Holden as James Gordon, David, David Niven as Alfred Pennyworth, and Peter O'Toole, who would go on to be in Supergirl, didn't work since the first two actors soon passed away. Ivan Reitman, yes, Ivan Reitman was approached to direct. That is, until, believe it or not, he wanted Bill Murray, who we worked with on pretty much all of his projects at the time. He wanted Bill Murray to portray Batman and Eddie Murphy to portray Robin. Of course, that wouldn't be a serious film. It really would be more of that camp found in the 60s television series. Wes Craven, which is a surprising choice. Wes Craven, the mastermind behind the horror series, a Nightmare on Elm Street, and Scream. He was also a choice, but Warner Brothers stepped in and said, eh, let's go with a guy who did Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, I guess that will get you a Batman movie. By this point, Burton had also done Beetlejuice. If you want to know more about Burton's early history working in film, check out our review of The Nightmare Before Christmas. I'll link to that below. By this point, Batman had a resurgence in the comic book world with the highly acclaimed The Killing Joke, and The Dark Knight Returns. In the book Burton on Burton, the director stated he was never a comic book fan, but he did consider The Killing Joke to be his favorite comic. 
Burton got Sam Hamm, who had only written Never Cry Wolf at the time, and really went on to do nothing afterwards. He got him to write a new treatment for the film. Hamm was a comic book fan that Burton knew of, hence his involvement. Ultimately, he would end up with story credit. Warren Scarin, who previously worked with Burton writing Beetlejuice and the now cult classic Top Gun, would go on to write the full screenplay. Of course, WB wanted big names for Batman. Burton was pressured into asking the future James Bond Pierce Brosnan to star, but he wasn't interested in playing a comic book character. So the director turned to a little-known actor at the time, Willem Dafoe. Yes, the future Green Goblin. And numerous other things, Willem Dafoe, is everybody knows he's huge now. It wasn't until producer John Peters approached Burton with Michael Keaton, who Burton had just directed as Beetlejuice. Keaton's acceptance was met with great controversy. Burton already was an eyebrow-raising choice. Keaton felt like a slap in the face to Batman fans. It's hard to believe in hindsight, but the reason WB was facing negative reactions due to their choices was the fact Burton had directed offbeat comedies, dark comedies you could say, and Keaton was known as a leading true comedy star. Think of Mr. Mom, um, that movie about the Japanese automakers coming to the US, I, I, I enjoy that one, I think it's called Gung Ho, it's a good one. The only casting fans approved of was Jack Nicholson as the Joker. In fact, Peters approached Nicholson about the part as far back as 1986 during filming of The Witches of Eastwick. Before Nicholson was cast, Robin Williams nearly landed the role. As for the female love interest, Sean Young of Blade Runner fame, and I, I guess Dune, was cast as Vicki Vale until she dropped out due to a horse riding incident. This is not the last we have heard of Sean Young. We'll get to her next week with Batman Returns. But I will say that would be a very different film. But she may have played off Keaton really well. I kind of want to see that movie now. Peters came to the rescue once again, quickly casting Kim Basinger to fill in the role. Burton did cast Billy Dee Williams on purpose because he wanted to set him up for a future return as Two-Face and tap into the black and white dichotomy that it would bring. Apparently, Ricky Addison Reed was cast as young Dick Grayson, he would briefly show up in the film until Scarin removed his scenes from the shooting script. As for crafting the look of Gotham City, Terry Gilliam's film Brazil was a major influence, and if anybody's seen Brazil, you'll know that right away. Burton brought Danny Elfman back, something he would do in perpetuity to score the film. Batman was also one of the first films to feature two soundtracks, Elfman's score and Prince's songs written and sung directly for the movie. Of course, when it came time to market the film, WB went all out with toys, paraphernalia of all sorts, even a novelization. I personally have the original Batman action figures. Burton, ever eschewing mainstream entertainment, wasn't thrilled about the mass marketing, but prominent cultural figure Kevin Smith later recalled Batman had completely taken over that summer. And the rest is history. Tim Burton's Batman truly cemented the character in the cultural zeitgeist. WB soon after greenlit the highly acclaimed Batman the Animated Series, the film and its characters made numerous AFI 100 lists, and it even caused the British Board of Film Classification to create the 12 rating. Batman would go on to win the Oscar for Best Art slash Set Direction, beating out Glory, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Driving Miss Daisy, and The Abyss. So how did it do with scores? It is PG-13, something... 
the Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies would not touch, but this really was wanting to tap into the darker side. If you listen to Alan and I's MPAA discussion, one of our very early discussions here on the podcast, you'll learn about their creation of the PG-13, and you'll know it was just a few years old at this point. Audiences straight out of the theater, according to CinemaScore, gave the film an A. It might surprise some people this film is not certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It does have a 72% approval rating, which isn't bad, but it's really not great. Um, it's, it's okay. I'm kind of surprised by that. 84% audience rating is pretty strong. A 69 meta score, that is definitely encouraging to see. Although it is decently well below... Richard Donner's Superman the Movie, which sits at 81, and a 94% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So just comparing those two right off the bat, Richard Donner's Superman was much better received, at least by critics. Now, it does have a 7.5 on IMDb. It's held up very well, 3.6 on Letterboxd. So you can see across the board, these are still strong, positive scores. It did have a Fairly slim budget for $89, $35 million. Just to recall, Superman had a $55 million budget, and that was about 10 plus years prior. But this movie did gangbusters at the box office. It opened at number one, $40.4 million opening weekend in um, 2,100 theaters. Opening weekend, I think this is going to maybe shock a lot of people. Because it did go up against a Disney movie. Now, mind you, a live-action Disney movie. It went up against Honey, I Shrunk the Kids opening weekend, which grows $14.2 million. Only in 1,300 theaters, though. So there's a big difference. Batman was playing in way more theaters. But it just knocked the competition out of the water. It knocked Ghostbusters 2 down from 1 to 3. No surprise there. $13.8 million for that. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was knocked from two to four, and the Dead Poet Society, number three, down to five. It stayed pretty strong in its second week as well, which is considered the long 4th of July weekend, actually coming in with more money if you count that long weekend, $43.5 million still reigning at number one. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was still at number two, but The Karate Kid Part 3 actually debuted, which is another one we've reviewed. That debuted to $10.3 million. That came in at number three. Finally, in its third week, Batman fell to number two. It stayed number two. Two weeks after that, it really did well at the box office is what I'm getting at. Uh, Lethal Weapon 2 is what knocked it from its number one spot. And really by just, just a hair. Because Lethal Weapon grossed $20.3 million. Batman $19.2 million. Lethal Weapon beat it out by maybe a million bucks. Um, so that's very impressive. Domestically, the film would go on to gross $251.4 million. You heard that right. Over a quarter of a billion dollars on a $35 million budget. Foreign markets, $160.1 million for an impressive worldwide total of $411.5 million. I can't emphasize it enough, listeners. When Batman came out in 89, it was huge. Audiences loved it. Critics loved it for the most part and it got an oscar um something the first superman movie did technically do the first superman movie was nominated for three oscars but no wins this actually won the oscar 
as this might be the first comic book movie ever to win an Oscar. That's uh, it's an interesting question. So it's no surprise, of course, that eventually Batman returned for the sequel, but that will be a conversation for next week. Thank you, listeners, for coming along with me as I have been your guide to the production and impact of this film. Now that you have your guide to Batman, make sure to subscribe to the podcast for my full review coming next Monday. And tune in the week after as Batman returns. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.